Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. I am going to ask Alan to come in and lead off on world perspectives. Well, comrades, these world perspectives are unlike any other world perspectives that I've ever spoken on. What... uh, like a black cloud hanging over the entire situation is this uh, unparalleled pandemic, which is still raging out of control, subjecting millions of men, women and children to terrible suffering and death. I will not give the statistics, they're well known, except that there are almost 100 million cases worldwide and over 2 million deaths. These are figures which which are just... uh, horrifying, unprecedented outside a terrible war, world war. The most devastating effects, of course, are in the poor countries, Africa, Asia, Middle East, Latin Latin America. But it also affects some of the wealthiest countries on, on earth. In the USA, there are over 25 million cases, and the number of deaths is creeping inexorably towards the figure of a half a million. I'm sitting in London where the, Britain now has the worst, among the worst figures of deaths in the, in the world per head of the population. 3.5 million cases, yeah, and they true. just admitted officially to over 100 million deaths. The real figure is nearer to uh, at least uh, 120 million deaths. Yeah. Oh, yes, I beg your pardon, 120,000, I beg your pardon, I stand corrected. In, uh, yes. In other words, the present crisis, is, it's not like an ordinary economic uh, crisis. It's literally a life and death question for the, for the millions of people. And the starting point of our analysis is that capitalism cannot solve this problem. It can't solve the problem because capitalism itself is the problem. And this terrible scourge has served served to expose the deep divisions between rich and poor. It's exposed the real deep fault lines that divide society between those who are condemned to to, to get sick and die of a horrible death and those who are not. It has exposed the the wastefulness of capitalism, its chaos and its inefficiency. And And these facts are preparing for an enormous, unprecedented upswing of the class struggle in all countries, every country of the world. I noticed that governments are very fond of using military analogies to, to describe the present situation. They say we are, at, we are at war with an invisible enemy, this terrible virus. And their solution is that we must all unite together, all classes and parties must unite together behind the existing government, of course. Yes, but there's a tremendous gulf separating words from deeds here. This gulf really reflects the contradiction between the urgent needs of society and the mechanisms of the market economy. If we were really at war with the virus, then governments should mobilize all their resources on one single task, to mobilize resources and coordinate for a a genuine global plan, plan of action. 
So that the case for a planned economy and the case for internationalism and international planning, really speaking, is unanswerable. Uh, I, I, despite uh, the the uh, ideas of Mr. Trump, viruses do not respect frontiers or border controls. Now, from a purely rational point of view, the best policy would be to ramp up vaccine production as quickly as possible, one would have thought. Instead of this, we have the, the, the disgusting spectacle of the row between the U European Union and Britain over, the, over scarce vaccines, while the poorest countries are virtually denied access to any vaccines at all. But the question arises, why is there scarcity? Why is there scarcity of vaccines at all? Capacity for production needs to be expanded by setting up new fact factories for, for the production of vaccines, for example. Why is this not done? For the simple reason that the big private vac vaccine manufacturers have no interest in expanding production okay. massively. Because if they did, they'd be, they'd be much worse off. If they ramped up production capacity so that the whole world was supplied within six months, which is entirely possible, the newly built factories would stand empty immediately afterwards. Think about it. Profits would therefore be much lower than the current situation, where existing plants produce at capacity for years to come, which means that the, the pharmaceutical companies earn big profits. And of course, there's constant problems with, with production and supply which means shortages everywhere, with millions of doses being unused. And of course, millions of people will die as a result. On the other hand, the capitalist class of all countries are pressing for workers to, to go back to work, for production to be restarted. Workers are forced back to work into crowded workplaces without adequate uh, means of protection. And this is a, equivalent to passing a death sentence on yes. many workers and their families. And of course, uh, on the other hand, the crisis, uh, the economic crisis is the most severe in 300 years, they say. Just, be, just between April and June of last year, 400 million jobs were lost worldwide. If you take tourism alone, which is important for many countries, poor yeah. countries, they reckon that 120 million jobs will be wiped out. The so-called emerging economies have been dragged down with the rest. India, Brazil, Russia, Turkey are all in crisis. South Korea's economy sank for the first last year for the first time in 22 years, despite enormous state subsidies worth, worth about $283 billion. Now, I won't spend much time on economics, because, although I will spend some time later on on economics if I have time. But from a Marxist point of view, the study of economics is not an abstract question, not an academic question. But it has a profound effect on the development of consciousness of all classes. That, that's the point. And uh, the, the main thing that we note everywhere now is a, a crisis, not just a government and a political crisis, but the crisis of the regime, particularly in Europe and the USA, I would say. There are clear indications that the crisis is so severe, so deep, that the ruling class is losing control of the traditional instruments which they used in the past for running society. And politicians, bourgeois politicians, have totally lost control of the situation. Let's begin with, with, with the, the wealthiest and most powerful country in the world, the USA. Now, we have a special session on the USA, so I apologize if I somewhat trespass on this. But the United States now is at the heart of world perspectives, as a matter of fact. The world economic crisis has hit the USA very hard. 40 million Americans filed for unemployment benefit during the epidemic. As always, it's the poorest who suffer most. And, and, and the youth, incidentally. 
A quarter, a quarter of under 25s have lost work. And this, this undoubtedly caused a lot, serious alarm in ruling class circles in the USA. The state, by the way, according to the theory of market economics, was not supposed to play any role whatsoever in economic life. Perhaps you remember that theory. It's by, alarmed, alarmed by the danger posed by the situation, the ruling class was, was compelled to take emergency measures. They ditched all the old theories of that the state must not intervene in the economy. And now in all countries, starting with the United States, the so-called free market economy, yeah. capitalism, is really on what you could say, it's on a life support system, like a coronavirus patient. It only exists, as a matter of fact, because of the, of the prop, the crutches of the state. Most of this money, by the way, from the state went straight into the pockets of the rich. But initially, it did have the effect of cushioning the, the worst effects of the crisis on the poorest layers. But now these uh, supports are being withdrawn. And we have, as a result, the most terrible poverty existing in, in, the, in the richest country in the world. I gave the, the, the figures in a recent article that I wrote, horrifying statistics, that American families now do not, many of them do not have enough money to put food on the table. Food banks are proliferating. And millions of people are sinking into the direst poverty. Many of them are threatened now with losing their homes because they can't pay the rent. In other words, the gulf between rich and poor has become transformed into an unbridgeable, unbridgeable abyss. And this has an effect. You take all this de demagogy about the national interest and we must all fight together, we're all in the same boat and so on. Well, let, let's, let's spell it out. The masses are prepared to make sacrifices under certain circumstances, big sacrifices. In time of war, people are prepared to, to unite to fight a common enemy. That is true. And they are prepared to accept, uh, for, for a period at least, to accept lower living standards and also restrictions on democratic rights to some extent for a period. But the existence of, the existence of unprecedented inequality, the scandalous uh, riches accumulated by the rich, for example, the, uh, uh, the IMF estimates that close to 90 million people are due to fall below the level of uh, $1.9 a day, the threshold of extreme deprivation. Yet in, 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 in 2020, the total wealth of the billionaires grew by $1.9 trillion. That's during the pandemic. That's during the crisis. You know, the example of Jeff Bezos stands out. He now makes more money per second than the typical U.S. worker makes in one week. The gulf separating the haves from the haves not has widened into an unbridgeable abyss, as I've said. And this is deepening the social and political polarization. That's the point. Creating an explosive mood of anger in society. There is a, everywhere you look, in all countries, there's a burning hatred of the rich and powerful, the bankers, Wall Street, and the establishment in general. This hatred was uh, skillfully channeled by the right-wing uh, demagogue Donald Trump. And this, is, this has appalled the uh, serious representatives of capital. They rightly saw Donald Trump as a threat because he was deliberately dynamiting the basis of consensus, the basis of, uh, of all, all the, uh, the center politics then that they've been painfully building up for decades. The ruling class is desperate to try to put the, to prevent this polarization and trying desperately to put the center together again. But the, all of this, all of the objective city conditions militate against their success. And the events of January the uh, the sixth 
when was when was the the the, the attack on the capital? I can't remember. It was before that. The event, the attack on the capital, was a striking a striking illustration of this fact. It. Uh, it, now they say it was an insurrection. They accused Donald Trump. They tried to impeach him for, for organizing an insurrection. Well, if it was an uh, if it was an attempted insurrection, it was a very poor one. More than an in, in, in insurrection, it was a big riot. Yes, but nevertheless, it was dangerous for the ruling class, and it glaringly exposed deep rifts in the state itself. They indicate that the polarization of society has reached uh, an unbearable point. It's a, a breaking point. The institutions of bourgeois democracy are being tested to the point of destruction. And that's got very serious consequences for the regime. It's a crisis of the regime. It's not a normal political crisis at all. I noticed that afterwards, despite a barrage of media hostility, 45% of registered Republicans thought that the storming of the Capitol Hill was justified. That's, you're talking about millions of people. That's, that's quite significant. But even more significant was the fact, people have forgotten that now, that 54% of all Americans thought that the burning down of the Minneapolis police precinct was justified. And let us not forget that 10% of the whole population of, of, of the United States took part in the Black Lives Matter movement it's protest, which are many times more than those, the people who stormed the Capitol. So the, 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 the spontaneous uprisings that swept the country following the murder of George Floyd and, and the subsequent and unprecedented events that followed the presidential elections, you, you take, all, all, take all of these things together. And what do they represent? They certainly represent a, a, a turning point in the entire situation. Of course, the, the, the movement is confused. To put it mildly, it's confused. It has some reactionary elements, it's true, but it isn't just uh, a black tide of reaction. That's, a, that's, a, a, that's not the nonsense of superficial liberal observers who understand nothing. With anyone with any understanding, from, from a Marxist point of view at least, we must be capable of separating what is reactionary from what is progressive in any given mass movement. And we must understand that here in embryo, we have the outline of future revolutionary developments in the future. The stupid liberals and reformists don't understand this. Of course, they're always shouting and complaining about fascism, about which they understand nothing. Later on, if I have time, I'll quote from a very perceptive article from the Financial Times, which shows that the bourgeois strategists understand what we understand. That is that everywhere, in all countries, beneath the surface, there is a mood of anger, of rage, of bitterness, and hostility towards the existing order that's developing fast. This mood expresses itself in a collapse of confidence in the official institutions, parties, the governments, political leaders, bankers, rich people, the police, judiciary, the existing laws, traditions, religion, morality of the existing system. People no longer believe what they're told by the newspapers and the television. They compare the huge difference between what is said and what actually happens, and they correctly draw the conclusion that we've been told a pack of lies. Now, that was not always the case in the past. You think about it. It wasn't the case in the past. In the past, most people didn't pay much attention to politics, actually. It goes for workers also. If you bought a newspaper, it wasn't to read the editorial. It was to read the sports pages. Conversations in the workplaces were usually about uh, football, the movies, television programs, and so on. 
politics were rarely mentioned, except maybe sometimes at the election time, perhaps. But now all that's changed. The masses are beginning to take an interest in politics because they they began to realize that this directly affects their lives and the lives of their families. And you must understand that this in and of itself is an expression of a move in the direction of revolution. That's what it is. The institutions of bourgeois democracy, as I've said, were based on the assumption that the gulf between rich and poor could be disguised and contained within manageable limits. But that's no longer the case. And that is precisely the reason for the collapse of the centre. That's the ce- a central point in the discussion today, the collapse of the political yes, centre. It's true that uh, because of the complete bankruptcy of the reformists, including the left reformists, this, this rage against the system has been uh, capitalised in many cases by right-wing demagogues, so-called populists. Yes. Of course, nature, nature abhors a vacuum, as scientists explained that to us. Yeah, but you see, the, the, this is interpreted by the stupid reformists as being uh, fascism. The usual nonsense. They understand nothing. But you see, the strategies of capital do understand. They yes. understand very well. And I, about Christmas time, the finan- about Christmas time, the Financial Times published a very interesting article signed by the editorial board, by the way. Therefore, it's an editorial statement, which showed a very clear understanding of the processes and where they would end up, where they would go. With your permission, I'll quote a few lines from this article. Groups left behind by economic change are increasingly concluding that those in charge do not care about their predicament. It's true, people say, these people don't care about me. They don't care about us. You listen to the Trump supporters when they're interviewed, that's precisely what they say. Washington don't care about us. We are the forgotten people, the article continues. Or worse, that they have rigged the economy for their own benefit against those on the margins. Slowly but surely, that is putting capitalism and democracy in tension with one another. Since the global financial crisis, that's 2008, this sense of betrayal has fueled a political backlash against globalizations and the institutions of liberal democracy. Right-wing pop... This is the interesting bit. This is the fascinating bit. Right-wing populism may thrive on this backlash while leaving capitalist markets in place. But as it cannot deliver on its promises to the economically frustrated, it is just a matter of time before the pitchforks come out for capitalism itself and for the wealth of those who benefit from it. Now, that's serious talk, isn't it? It shows a perfect understanding of, 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 the, of the mechanics, of the dynamics of the class struggle how so-called right-wing populism can just be the, the, the first stage towards a revolutionary explosion. They understand that perfectly well. Even the, even, the lang- even, the, even the language is significant. Armed with pitchforks, it suggests an analogy with the French Revolution or maybe the Peasant Revolt of 1381, where the peasants seized London. Now, this tremendous volatility can be observed in many countries, if not in every country. We saw it uh, just recently in Russia, where the return of uh, Navalny was the signal for an explosion of, of, of big demonstrations in, uh, in Moscow and about 110 other cities. Yes, places like Vladivostok and Khabarovsk in the, in, the province, in the provinces. 
And uh, of course, what does this represent? Well, it's not yet the Russian Revolution, it's true. It's also true that these were very heterogeneous uh, demonstrations. Middle class people, bourgeois, liberals, intellectuals, and so on. Yes, but there were also a growing number of workers. And what does this represent? These were, these were quite big demonstrations in a Russian context. And it's got to be seen in the context of falling living standards between 2013 and 2018. That's before the pandemic. The annual economic growth of Russia was 0.7%. That's basically, it was basically stagnant. And I think at the end of last year, it was falling by about 5%. Negative growth of 5%. That's the last figure I've seen it. Putin in the past could boast of some success in the economic field, and, but not anymore. Unemployment is growing fast and many, many families are even losing their homes. So the question of Navalny was only one element in this equation. Everything indicates that Putin's support now is, is collapsing. Two days after he was arrested, Navalny put out a video, a very interesting video, seen by millions of people exposing the personal corruption of Putin and the fact that he's built a big palace, I think it's on the Black Sea. And all this is building up an explosive mood. As I say, it's not, uh, Russia's not in a pre-revolution situation yet, but events are, are moving very fast now. But then uh, at, at the other end of the world, practically in India, we see, as I speak, we see events which do amount to an insurrectionary movement, insurrectionary movement of the farmers who staged a uh, uh, a, a protest march, a tractor march to Delhi on the 26th of January, a couple yeah. of days ago, on the Republic Day, actually, yeah. where Modi was celebrating with a big a military uh, parade. And it was impressive to see this on television. It was astonishing to see thousands of farmers fighting with the police, forcing their way into the, the red zone, I think it's called, the red city, yeah. whatever it's called. Yeah. These poor people showed tremendous courage fighting with he heavily armed police, attacked with whips, kicked, uh, beaten to the ground and kicked and beaten. Uh, so the Red Fort, that's what it's called. And clearly, Modi's been clearly shaken by this uh, uprising, which gave him a, a, an idea of the pent-up fury of the masses. But the weakness of the movement here, and it's a general picture, that the weakness of the, of the movement in India yes. is, the, is the absence of an organized, a serious response from the powerful Indian working class. Uh, the farmers, the farmer struggle did have a, a, have a big echo in the factories, but the cowardly Stalinist trade union leaders yes. are trying to put the blame, trying to put the brakes on. But now that the, the fire is under their backside, and they're talking about a four, now a four-day general strike, and that's significant. In the past, they've tried to exhaust the workers, as as happened in in Greece. Also, they did the same trick, calling a series of one-day general strikes, which is a trick to blow off steam. And, and, and prevent a generalized movement. As my, earlier on this week, we were discussing on the IS the, uh, the, the slogans proposed by the comrades in India and Pakistan of a general strike. And I hope that I'll have time to deal with that question later on. It's an important question. Now, again, the, the, we'll have a discussion on America, so I won't spend much time on the perspectives for the Biden administration. Wall Street obviously now places all its hopes on Joe Biden and the... Uh, uh, is, uh, and his vac vaccination efforts, but these hopes will lead, lead nowhere. Biden will preside over a deep crisis and a divided and declining nation. The attempts to buy his way out of the crisis will just increase the, the, the debt, which is, in, which is already enormous. And this is preparing a, a huge crisis further down the line. 
I don't know. Yes. I won't have time to deal much with China, which is a pity. Perhaps you should have a special discussion on China sometime in the, the near future. But China is the only major economic power to have, have had some kind of positive growth. That's because the Chinese state intervened very decisively to counteract both the pandemic and the economic crisis. Yes. Kind of state capitalism, if you want to use that expression. And to be fair, it did it did, make, did get results, at least up to the present time, it's got results. Mm. It's true that China's great, at, I think it's at the present time, it's about 2%, which is very poor from a Chinese perspective. But they, they now forecast a growth of 8% this year. If that is true, then China will outperform the rest of the world. But this very success is going to be its undoing. Because this economic growth is based almost ex ex excessively on export. China is intervening aggressively on the world market. It'll have to intervene even more aggressively. And this inevitably means greater tension between China and the United States, which, which sees China as the main danger, as a matter of fact. Not just Trump, but Biden also. They all agree on this. The Democrats agree. Now, previously, China was a big part of the solution to the problems of world capitalism. Now it's a big part of the problem. And the conflict between, particularly between the United States and China, threatens to bring about uh, a, an even more serious trade war, which is the yeah. greatest possible threat to, to world capitalism that exists. Because it was the growth of world trade, actually, that, that explains the development of capitalism in the last period so-called globalization. And now, of course, that will turn into its opposite with, with very negative results for capitalism. That in turn will have an effect inside China. But already there have been factory closures and unemployment, which is concealed, but it exists. That explains the reason for, for uh, Xi Jinping clamping down on Hong Kong. That wasn't, that wasn't an expression of strength. It was an expression of fear and weakness. The Chinese ruling circle was terrified that what happened in Hong Kong would spread to the cities of mainland China. And that's going to occur as night follows day, it will occur. As an international, we must be prepared for big events in China, which will occur when nobody expects it, by the way. Be precisely because it's a totalitarian regime, we don't know what's happening there. Whereas the Chinese state could suppress a small place like Hong Kong, it will not be so easy for them to control a uh, hundred Hong Kongs in different China centers of China. And therefore, we have to follow China very closely. Thank now, I, I said I wouldn't speak much about the, the economy. I don't have time for that. But it, it's interesting to, to underline the point I made earlier, that when the bourgeoisie is threatened with losing everything, they will resort to the most extreme measures to defend their system. And everywhere now, they've ditched the old arguments in favor of uh, the market and so on and opted, in effect, in favor of Keynesianism. They've learned, they've lurched like a drunken man, lurching from one lamppost to another. Now they, de they depend almost exclusively on the handouts of the state. Ted Grant used to describe Keynesianism as voodoo economics. I think that's a fair description. The idea that the state has got unlimited funds, you can just draw, draw upon it and draw upon it, uh, is just nonsense. That's really a desperate uh, policy that they've adopted everywhere. And it's leading to absolutely astronomical debts, uh, unthinkable debts. And this is the greatest danger facing the capitalist system at the present. I've got the figures here. We, we, we'll do a document lately and we'll produce this. But sooner or later, this, this, these debts will catch up with them. It's, 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 it's a ticking time. Uh, there's a ticking time bomb of debt, which is built into the foundations of the economy now. The long term, its effects will be more devastating than any terrorist bomb. But in the short term, they're all quite happy to continue this. And they even publish articles now saying uh, 
confidently predicting a revival, a, a rebound, I think they call it. Now, as serious people, we must take the, these arguments seriously. We must consider, the, consider their arguments anyway. Is a recovery of some sort possible? Well, first of all, I think we must understand that predictions, the economic predictions of the IMF and the World Bank should be taken with a, pinch, a large pinch of salt. In the first, in the first place, the, the present crisis is different from crises of the past because it's inseparably entangled with the coronavirus pandemic, and nobody can predict with any degree of certainty how long that will last. For this, for this reason, that the economic prediction of the ruling class, of the economists cannot be regarded as anything more than mere guesswork. That's all. The only thing that's certain at the present time is that the all the main indicators are pointing stubbornly downwards. That that is clear. But does that mean that a recovery of some sort is completely ruled out? No, it's not. Uh, you can't draw that conclusion. As a matter of fact, at a certain point, some kind of recovery is inevitable. The capitalist system has always moved in booms and slumps, and this is no different despite the coronavirus. Yeah, sooner, or later, sooner or later, they'll find a way out of that also. But we have to look at what kind of recovery we're talking about here. Are we talking about the beginning of a prolonged period of growth and prosperity? Or will it be merely a temporary interview, interlude between one crisis and another? Now, the, the most optimistic prognosis are based on the existence, at least in the advanced capitalist countries, of what they call pent-up demand. There are, million, of course, millions of people that suffer terrible poverty or reduced to absolute impoverishment. That's true. Yeah, but there are other millions of middle-class families, better, better-off families, that have not been able to spend money during, for the duration of the pandemic, and they have money to spend. That's a fact. They'll be anxious to, at the end of the at the end of the pandemic. They'll be anxious to spend the money in restaurants, cafes, bars, and foreign travel, and so on. This could be a, a could be a factor which would mean that after the pandemic is finished, there'll be an immediate sharp upward movement in the economy. That's not ruled out, I think. Together with huge injections, further huge injections of money from the state, which is which are continuing. Now let's be clear on one question, because some, sometimes I think Cromer's got a too black and white uh, idea of this. It, a, a temporary economic recovery, from our point of view, would not necessarily be a negative thing at all. The onrush of the pandemic, the sudden appearance of the pandemic and the consequent rise of mass unemployment actually shocked the working class and led to a degree of paralysis. That's a fact. But even a modest recovery, a small recovery of the economic activity, slight fall in unemployment, would have the immediate effect of reactivating the economic struggle as, as, as workers stri strive to gain back everything they've lost in the last period. And let's be absolutely clear about it. Such a recovery would be temporary and extremely unstable because it's based entirely on an artificial and an unsound basis. It would contain within itself the seeds of its own destruction. And the higher, the higher it climbs, the more severe the fall would be. But as I said earlier, the, the, the question of economics, really speaking, is only of interest from our point of view insofar as it impacts on the, the consciousness of the masses. And here I must confess, sometimes I feel a little bit uneasy about the way some comrades pose the question of perspectives. It's, it, it, it strikes me as being a bit mechanical, if you like. Comrade writes an article, does a list of, of, of very interesting statistics indicating the misery, the hunger, the unemployment, and so on. And then he immediately concludes, capitalism is finished, long live the socialist revolution. Commons, things are, are not quite so simple as that, I'm afraid to say. 
And from a dialectical point of view, that, that method is quite objectionable. You do not inject conclusions externally into a, an article or a speech. You cannot assume what, what is to be proven. Don't, don't think that people reading these articles necessarily are convinced by what we say. No, the conclusions must flow naturally from the analysis, and it must be a serious yes. analysis. It's very easy to give, to give a description of the crisis of capitalism. To list the evils of capitalism is not a difficult task. What is not so easy, and what we have to establish, is how to, to explain, how do you get from A to B, comrades? How do you get from A to B? And this needs to be explained. Now, uh, the, the main problem, of course, is the absence of the subjective factor. That's us, by the way. The crisis is a fact, and it's a fact that the workers are learning. They are learning. Yeah, but it takes time. It's a learning process. And the masses will not immediately draw the same conclusions that we've drawn for theoretical reasons a long time ago. In every country, the masses can only learn from one thing, and that's experience. As Lenin used to say, life teaches. But, you know, learning from the great book of experience is normally a painfully slow process. It would be greatly facilitated if there existed a mass revolutionary party like the Bolsheviks, in, even in February 1980, uh, an organization with sufficient numbers to be present and with sufficient authority to be listened to by the workers. You know, one time Lenin paraphrased Hegel. He said that the truth is always concrete. That's something the workers understand very well. But sometimes the most erudite Marxists have forgotten. Comrades, we must show concretely how to pass from A to B and from B to C and D and E. For this purpose, we must work out an appropriate program of transitional demands that are aimed to protect the lives and health of workers and place the burden of the crisis on the shoulders of the capitalists and bankers. We demand serious measures of protection not just for workers in health and other frontline services, but for all workers paid for by the employer. If the bosses That's say they nice. can't afford these things, let them open the books and expose the secret piles of money they've got hidden and the huge amount of money which they plundered from the state. It's only by fighting for these things that the workers will finally come to see the necessity for a fundamental change in society. The main problem is a problem of leadership. The angry mood of the masses... Uh, cannot find it an expression in the official organizations of the class. The trade unions are trying to hold the movement back. But with or without them, the movement will find a way of expressing itself. In Italy, for example, there's no, no mass workers' party. But the mood of the, the masses in Italy grows angrier and more impatient by the day. The repeated failures of government is in, are inevitably leading to an explosion of the class struggle. Ultimately, matters will be solved, not in Parliament, but in the factories and on the streets. New layers will be drawn into the struggle. We saw that in France with the Gilets Jaunes. We now see it in India with the movement of the farmers. In a peculiar way, we even saw a glimpse of this in the storming of the U.S. Capitol. And to return to this discussion, interesting discussion we're having with the comrades in Pakistan and, and India, what would the appropriate slogans be now in India? In India, objectively speaking, all the conditions exist for an all-out general strike. That's perfectly true. The problem is that the Stalinist leaders, are, as usual, have been dragging their feet. They're hopelessly corrupt, counter-revolutionary, if you like. But you must understand, even the most corrupt and counter-revolutionary leaders can come under the pressure of the working class when it begins to move. 
Now the trade union leaders in India are calling for, or are discussing rather, the idea of a four-day general strike. That's not our position. Our position is an all-out general strike. So what position do we take? You see, we are not in charge. We are not in the leadership of the movement. These guys are. We should say to them, very well, let's have a four-day general strike, but less talk and more action, please. First thing, name the day. Name the day, my friends. Start a campaign in the factories, call mass protest meetings, set up strike committees, and draw in the farmers, the women, the youths, the unemployed, and all oppressed sections of society, and link up all these rank-and-file organs of struggle on a citywide, regional, and national level. In other words, organize Soviets. If that were done, I don't say that it would be, but if it were done, a four-day strike would soon be transformed into an all-out indefinite general strike. That's what would happen, which poses the question of power. And once once the masses in India are, are organized for the conquest of power, no force on earth can stop them. Now I have to really finish by remarks, I'll sum up. Yes. But there's one point that we really must take on, must understand. This will be a long, drawn-out crisis. Last years, perhaps even decades, I don't know, with ups and downs. It'll be long done only for one reason, the absence of the subjective factor, that's all. However, that's just one side of the coin. The fact that it will be long drawn out does not mean to say that it will be any less uh, turbulent. Quite the contrary. The present period is one of sharp and sudden changes. We've made that point before. Process which in the past took many years to develop can now occur overnight, posing very serious questions before our organization. And we must be prepared, comrades. The year 2021 will be a year like no other. The working class has entered a very harsh school. There will be many defeats and setbacks. But from that school, the workers will draw the necessary lessons. The leaders are, are, are completely out of their depth. The trade union leaders, they reflect, they reflect the past, the days when they had an easy life with, yes. the, with the bosses. They could easily get small concessions for the workers. Yes. But now things will be, are very different. They'll have to fight for every, every advance, every, every demand. And the workers find themselves in an intolerable condition where the lives of themselves and their families are, are in danger. And the, the unions will be transformed in the course of struggle. There's some indications of that already in Britain. Perhaps Rob can deal with it. Or yeah, Ben can deal with that. One by one, the old right-wing leaders are dying or retiring or being replaced. A new generation of younger class fighters is coming, is beginning to emerge to challenge the leadership. The stage is set for the transformation of the unions into organisations of struggle. And even the most reactionary and apparently inert trade unions will be drawn into this process. And we Marxists must be in the front front rank of this struggle, upon which the ultimately the success of the socialist revolution depends. Dialectics te- tells us that things can change into their opposites, and we must be prepared for this. We have the correct ideas, methods, and perspectives. Our task is now to translate this into growth, to build a powerful revolutionary of army of cadres that is capable of building a serious revolutionary army, capable of leading the workers to the seizure of power. That is the most urgent task. There is nothing more important in our lives, and together we can definitely achieve it. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.
socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.